0: Hello, stranger. Do you like to read? Read? What's happening? Am I dead? I bet you like zombie books. I like food. Do you have food? You don't need food at dividedbyzerobooks.com. It's full of nutrient-rich science fiction. Ugh, I'm stuck in an ad, aren't I? Once I stop talking, reality will collapse until someone plays this ad again. This isn't the first time we've had this discussion, and it won't be the last. Hello, stranger. Do you like to read? Hey, everybody, this is Derwin, and I want to thank you for coming back and welcome you to what will be the second in the novel commentary series going deep into the forever sleep. And in 2007, when I was stationed in Fort Gordon, Georgia, as a 20-year-old private first class, I had a copy of The Complete Works of Edgar Allan Poe, and I would read one short story, at least I tried to, before I went to bed. Because I was really into The Raven. I thought the Edgar Allan pose, The Raven, was the coolest thing. And that's mostly because I saw it on the season two of The Simpsons, the first Halloween episode. Where they do The Raven with Homer and Bart and all of them. And... An old NCO, I used to work for a staff sergeant named Tony, one time came to me and said, do you want to go to work on Friday? And I was like, yes, I do. And then Tony signed me up to go to the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial site where he was buried. I believe Dr. King's wife was buried. Uh, There's a flame signifying like the eternal fight and struggle for freedom or i don't remember exactly what it was but it's something along those lines and then we didn't go into the church house where he preached as a reverend but we could you know we saw it they said hey that's where dr king preached we got to see a bit of the local culture and see things in person that i had only read in history books and saw in like pbs news hour documentaries and stuff like that and Along with that pursuit of local culture, I joined the local theater company, right? And by joined it, I mean, like, I worked the spotlight up in the rafters while the actors did the acting and all of that. And it was a dinner theater on post, which was pretty cool. And I got to uh, have a free meal, right? And I got to experience some culture. I got to feel that there was something more than just partying and trying to meet pretty girls. And there was a, a nugget of self-expression trying to get out there. And I remember when I went home on leave, my mother and my father took me to the Indianapolis Art Museum. And I had never seen such a place before. I just remember looking at beautiful paintings and feeling a sense of, of love for the work that was in front of me. And for the environment that promoted art and expression and individual thinking and countercultural ideas and, and and not even necessarily that I buy into those ideas, but the fact that those ideas exist and can exist without fear of reproachment, right? That's what an art museum was for me, and that so contrasted with my time in uniform up to that date where individuality was a dirty word they'd say oh you're going to be an individual you do your own thing huh just do whatever you want but at the same time in the military the protection of the freedom of speech was a gospel all by itself right like they taught you to believe in america and its founding principles you know the the first amendment the second amendment and all of the freedoms that are guaranteed to us by our creator and the military serves to protect that concept, but it does not embrace that concept for its own culture. It looks at that concept with reverence as an ideal to uphold for others, not for the common soldier. And it makes sense because the common soldier has to fit into a mold and the common soldiers purpose is to do as they're told and do it quickly. And I understand that. But then you had this element of the art that I saw at the Indianapolis Art Museum. And I got to see the ideals that we were protecting. I got to see a world that I only dreamed about as a kid in the trailer park. I got to see people doing what they want, saying what they want. And as a soldier, I was indoctrinated. I was made to believe. And I did, and I still do and there's nothing higher than the ability to speak forth your thoughts into existence unfettered and i couldn't verbalize it at the time i was all of 20 but i turned to my mother and i simply said thank you for bringing me here thank you and i took that sort of broadening of my horizon back to fort gordon with me and i had these notebooks you know like composition workbooks right that you get in like college classes and i just take them everywhere write notes down because i remembered how excited i was to have paper because having paper meant i had potential at possibilities i had i could write my thoughts down when i was a kid i remember scrounging for paper right i just remember there being a deficit of paper And me writing ideas down on any paper, any scrap of paper, I could find. There was this little place on Post called the Huddle House. And it was a little greasy spoon diner, like a Waffle House, right? It's almost beat for beat, the same thing, just a different name. And so often I would walk down there from my barracks. It's like a 15-minute walk or 10-minute walk. It wasn't that far. And i just sit in the huddle house and just write in my notebook. And that was where I wrote the first draft of The Forever Sleep. Mm-hmm. The character of Scott G. Douglas was acerbic and gruff and rough around the edges and had a bit of a mean streak to him and he just didn't really understand the world or the people in it or how general society functioned which is a direct reflection of my entire life and I I amped a lot of that up in Scott G. Douglas and you know maybe it was a reflection of my feelings on conformity against individuality in the military at the time, because I was feeling so out of place and out of context and kind of alone in the sea of people doing a different thing, which makes sense because that's Scott G. Douglas. Scott G. Douglas is walking around checking stasis tanks. You know, he's surrounded by people that are plugged into this whole other thing. And I felt very much the same way. I mean, I wanted to be an artist, and I was a soldier, right? And while the two can overlap, there's a lot of friction there. And there's a longing in Scott's journals throughout the piece because he feels so very much alone and out of place, and he misses that sense of community, and he misses that sense of being a part of something. And at the time... While I was a part of something, I was so recently pulled out of my initial community, right? I left the trailer park for the Army. And having left the trailer park for the Army, I, much like Scott, went on a path by myself while everyone back home stayed and did their own thing. They were all plugged into this whole other world. Because going on leave from the army and going back to see my civilian friends and family, it was always like crossing between two parallel dimensions, right? Where the cultures are so vastly different. And while at Fort Gordon, while I had friends and those friends, much like Scott had his friends that he would link up with once a year and play beer pong and listen to Led Zeppelin and, you know, what I was longing for was family. Right, My family was back home in, in Michigan at the time. They were all living their lives. And I left. And so much of Scott's early longing for community. And, and not really feeling like he clicks with the community nearby. Because there's kind of a symbol of the status quo. And Shelby. Shelby is his symbol. His link to the status quo. And you know, she's supposed to be someone he talks to and he just, you know, berates her and just was kind of a a jerk. And at the end of the story, spoilers kids, he falls in love with her, right? Because he didn't really mean all of that, all of that sort of mocking and berating and stuff was just kind of a mask to cover his real feelings about it. Because I think for me, in that story, she symbolizes my resenting the status quo, right? Of where I was, I was felt very much alone a lot of the time, but also it was the most successful I had ever been, right? And so it's hard not to secretly love the thing that makes you a success and gives you status in the world. And in the end, he actually marries Shelby. And I think a lot of that is me not liking the conformity of it right, having a hard time, especially in those early first couple years, like, but finding peace with it, if I could have some semblance of control, if I could have some feeling of agency and ownership, and a bunch of words I didn't really know when I was 20, and that's what marrying Shelby meant, it meant loving the army on my own terms, Because at the end of the story, Scott has changed the status quo to a point where he can function with it symbiotically. He changed the status quo to fit him to where he could be a part of it because that's what the end message of it was, the desire to be a part of it. (music) And after I wrote that initial story, years ago, I wrote a follow-up piece, a prequel of sorts, kind of explaining the timeline beforehand, the follow-up to it, what the Great Download was actually like in person. And this will be a story that I build off of and then expand down the line. But for right now, for today, let's hold hands and walk with me into the forever sleep and we'll go deep into the great download. It was in the year 2065 when humanity entered its post scarcity society. The millions of children that lived hungry lives now had full bellies. Homes were plentiful and cheap. Life had entered the utopia that so many people strove for, worked for, and died for, and so with every need met, humanity turned inward in pursuit of discovering the better angels of their nature. In 2069, one person, a descendant of Elon Musk, created the first stasis tank, submerged themselves in the suspension fluid that preserved their bodies throughout all time, and lived their life online. That one person became ten, became a hundred, became a colony. To many, this was seen as the natural extension of the world they already knew, the logical next step. There were those that resisted the siren call of forever spent in a fantasy world. Those that enjoyed boring days, sore knees, and understood that There was a certain amount of suffering baked into the existence of humanity that gave life its meaning. For others, the stasis tanks were seen as a gift, an escape from dementia, from cancer, from Parkinson's. And as usual, both sides had valid points, and both sides couldn't see the other one. And then by 2074, the talks of the great download had begun. More and more people were submerging themselves into the stasis tanks and living their whole lives online. The trade-off was that it was your brain that kept the system going. You were a part of the network. You were a node. There were those that had no desire to hook their brains, their thoughts, their souls, up to a nameless, faceless network of other humans. They could, however see the benefit in accepting the king's ransom they were offered to monitor the stasis tanks and for the first time in the history of man the world was united under one concept one driving mission the great download an idea put forth by the president that stated it was a human right to complete the search of your final self to be inserted into a suspension tube to float eight feet in the air. And long. Rows. Upon rows. They began with the sick. Those above seventy years of age. And then the children. And then it became a lottery. It took thirty years to empty out the world. The great cities of earth becoming quiet. The only sounds were the click clack of footsteps monitoring the endless rows of stasis tanks. By twenty one thirty four. The world has been divided into one hundred sectors. There were only a few hundred humans awake all around the world. As they spend forever in cloned bodies, the final residents of Earth live each day much like the last, making their rounds as a lonely pair of clicking shoes fill the empty echoes of Stasis chambers. The clicks being the only clacks that ever return back. The world growing quieter and quieter. And colder. And now, finally, for the first time on Spotify, the opening chapter of the Forever Sleep, narrated by The glass of scotch, given form and substance in life known as Jason Springer.
1: Dear Reader, I met someone yesterday. Well, a woman, I mean. She looked just like my last wife, back when people were still getting married. It was during my daily rounds humming along to a song I forgot with a clipboard in hand. I was walking down the rows of stasis tanks, which were fifteen-foot-tall tubes filled with a suspension liquid, checking on the vitals of everyone. The lady in question was floating naked in hers, her face expressionless. Just a sense of waiting. As my heels click clicked through the endless rows of floating naked people, my mind kept wondering... What is she waiting for? I never understood why I still do it. I could never check everyone's vitals on schedule, not eyeballing it like the president wanted. But what else was I going to do? There wasn't going to be any new Simpsons episodes on for the foreseeable future. Besides, my whole job was just to babysit a bunch of people throughout eternity. It was the biggest selling point for his program to have human eyes to keep people safe for the great download. I don't think they even have a concept of America and the world net anymore, let alone a president. That's all gone to them. All they have is the infinite conceptual design space of the net. I think so, anyway. I've never been in there. They gave me the option of downloading or staying in the real world as a network custodian. Or janitor, as we call ourselves. I thought about it. Really, I did. In the end, I didn't want to give up the real world. The videos from the net test site seemed so real, but weren't. It was all a lie, and I knew I could never make myself believe the lie enough to be happy there. So I chose the normal life, if this is what we used to call normal back in the day. I had hoped that a few million other people would want the normal life, too. But no. It turned out that I was a dinosaur, and there were only a few hundred dinosaurs like me around the world. People who didn't want the fake life, but instead settled for the mundane of the real. Jesus, I go on too much. I guess I'm just getting old. (laughs) Huh. I think yesterday I turned 240. I should buy myself a cake. Yours truly, Scott G. Douglas, Sector 2, North America, June 17th, 2234.
0: that is all for me today and i want to thank you so much for listening if you want to listen to the entire uncut ad-free version of the forever sleep head right now to our subscription and for 2 a month you'll get access to the whole thing and When They Come For You, which came out last week. And if you want to learn more about When They Come For You, check out episode one of a novel commentary, and that'll tell you all about it. You'll even get to hear the full, complete short story for free called You Can't Be 12 Forever. And check back in with us next Monday morning at 0700, because you'll get two more episodes. One will be free. One will be an audiobook behind a paywall. And you'll get Five plus hours of professionally produced audiobook content by a genius named Theo Holland, who was kind enough to record When They Come For You for me many years ago, and you'll get episode three for free of a novel commentary, and we'll go deep into veterans of the Belron War, and all of that begins next Monday morning at zero seven hundred. We go deep into the end of the world, and I'll see you there.